By now, you must be wondering how XS Tech can help you seize the future. Properly warned, ye be, says I. We hope that this voyage you're about to take, 20,000 leagues under the sea, will stimulate your interest in the phenomenon of life in the ocean depths. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and thank you for tuning in once again this week. This is show number 36 for the week of October 14th, 2007. I have just a few pieces of news from Walt Disney World before we take a look at the next of the seven wonders of Walt Disney World. Once again, it's something you really can't see or touch, but something that definitely belongs on the list. We'll announce the winner of our latest Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge Contest, and then I'll answer a number of your vacation planning-related emails, this time with the help of Pam Forrester, our travel expert and co-owner of The Magic for Less Travel. I'll also play more of your voicemails at the end of the show, so as always, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Just a couple of quick pieces of news out of Walt Disney World this week. First is the new Epcot 25th anniversary exhibit called Creating the New World of Tomorrow, located over in Interventions West, looks as though it may run until the end of the year, according to some cast members. Also in Interventions West, the rumored Velcro exhibit will be taking the place of the ultimate home theater experience. At Interventions East, the Waste Management exhibit will replace the Opportunity City exhibit and should reopen in February 2008. And Jedi wannabes, get your lightsabers ready because the all-new Jedi Training Academy has opened on its new permanent stage earlier this week next to the Star Tours attraction over at the Disney MGM Studios. The show runs eight times daily, beginning at 9.40 a.m. with the last show at 4.45 p.m. and lasts about 20 minutes. If you plan on attending, be sure and check your daily times guide when you get to the parks. And of course, may the force be with you. Like I said, just those two pieces of news this week. If you have any news that you want to share or discuss, you can send it to Lou at WDWRadio.com or discuss it in the forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. It's time for the next of the seven wonders of Walt Disney World, and Jeff Pepper is back once again to join me as we explore what's next on the list. Jeff, welcome back as always. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Thanks for having me back. Good, good, good. Um, Like again, it seems just like yesterday we were in Epcot Center. (laughs) (laughs) Tomorrow, we'll probably be back again soon. Yeah, probably. We still haven't finished our Epcot retrospective, but uh, we're going to take a break from that for a while because... Like I said, we want to explore what's next on the list of seven wonders. And for those of you who may not be familiar with what we're doing here, let me tell you what we mean by the seven wonders. Uh, Some time ago on Good Morning America, I saw a piece about what they were calling the seven wonders of the modern world. And that got me to thinking about what the seven wonders of Walt Disney World would be. What, What things are so amazing or so incredible that they qualify as a wonder? 
So I asked for listener and reader input, and I compiled a list of some things that were overwhelming entries, while others that received some very, very impassioned nominations and compelling arguments. So, Jeff, let's just quickly go over the list of what the the previous five were. And the first one on the list was Spaceship Earth. Uh, And we're going to kind of redo that as part of our, you know, reopening of the attraction, Epcot Retrospective, Seven Wonders series. But but that was the one that really just overwhelmingly was first on most people's lists. And we have something to celebrate on that regard as well, because as Jim McPhee quoted, it has been restored to its original uh, state. Yeah, so uh, I think what we'll do is we'll save that for after the reopening so we could talk about the changes that, that are that are in place. But second on the list was Cinderella Castle, again, for just so many reasons. Third on the list that we covered was audio animatronics. Fourth was the monorail, again, something that uh, received some very, very compelling arguments from some people. And the last one that we covered, we did in a sort of roundtable format, and that was the music of Walt Disney World, whether it be the attraction music, the show music, the live music, um, so much of what the storytelling is all about is brought about through the music. And uh, everybody seemed to agree that that definitely qualified to be on the list. But the, the sixth of our wonders is, you know, like the music, it, it's something that you can't touch, you can't taste it, you can't ride it, and you really can't even see it. But the more you know about it and the more you kind of think about it, you're going to understand the awesome planning and and engineering that it took. And I think that you're going to agree that it belongs on a list as well. And that is, it's the actual construction of Walt Disney World. And uh, again, Jeff, we're going to kind of explore this in some relatively general terms because we could get, we could spend hours, again, shocker of shockers, (laughs) talking about the details and the people and the facts and figures. But kind of overall, you know, turning this swamp into the vacation kingdom that it was back in 71 and obviously what it is now was this, you know, you have to imagine it was such an insurmountable task at the time, Um, but it was Walt's vision and, you know, as story goes, when he flew over the swamp and and Bay Lake and said, that's it, this is the place that I'm going to build the next park, you have to believe that the confidence that he had and the foresight that he had and the belief in the people around him to do is almost a wonder in itself. Yeah, you and you just hit on something that I wanted to talk about just briefly, but it's it's something that just strikes a very deep emotional chord with me, and that is when I read about the construction and the planning and all the preparation and, and everything that went in to building Walt Disney World, what you just talked about was Walt's you know, flying over Bay Lake and basically saying that's the place. What we hear a lot about is when people compare Disneyland to Walt Disney World, um, on a very personal level, you'll hear a lot of the fans of Disneyland say, you know, I love Walt Disney World, but, you know, Disneyland, that's where Walt was. You, you feel Walt there. And, and it's always like, well, yeah, that's true. But Walt put his imprint on Disney World. Unfortunately, you know, he died tragically. You know, and that's also part of the, what was the part of the challenge of all this with the construction and the planning and everything with the fact that Walt died right in the middle of everything happening. But Walt was there. Walt walked on this ground. Walt flew over and pointed down and said, that's where I want to build it. And there's pictures of Walt surveying the area. And I think what's most significant is at the, the root of all of this construction and all of this planning was that very rough sketch. You know what I'm talking about, where he just rough sketched out how he conceived it to be. And... By and large, you know, with the exception of um, Epcot, the city, and things like the airports and the industrial parks, 
the actual placement of the theme parks and the resorts around Bay Lake really reflect Walt's vision. And so it is Walt. It is Walt's vision that, you know, basically started the genesis of the whole process of constructing Walt Disney World. Right. And we keep using the term Walt's vision and Walt's dream. We, we talked about it with Epcot. and We want to specifically talk about it here because on in so many different ways, Walt's vision was carried out, whether it be logistically as to where he wanted, where that rough sketch ended up placing things, or how his brother was able to carry it on with the help of people like, you know, Admiral Joe Fowler and General Joe Potter and the thousands of workers and Imagineers turned that very simple concept and his vision into a reality. Yeah, it's... When you consider the challenges that they were up against, and again, as, as Walt died tragically in the midst of it, when 1971, when October 1st, 1971 rolled around, it was a, just a stunning achievement when you take it all into consideration. And, that, and that's the thing. There's so many things, again, that I think qualifies the construction as a wonder. Um, and, you know, part of it goes to what they were able to do before they even moved one speck of dirt. Uh, you know, it was important that Walt, and again, I say this with, with the utmost respect, Walt did make some of his mistakes with Disneyland, and he admittedly knew that he had to get more property. And in addition to that, he needed to have total control over both the design and the construction, as well as how things were going to be built. So, especially if he was going to build Epcot, the city, I mean, that was of paramount importance. So, you know, the fact that he's able to convince the state of Florida to form his own quasi-government, you know, the Mickey Mouse guy forms his own government called the Reedy Creek Improvement District and establishes these cities of Lake Buena Vista and Bay Lake and, you know, working on all the tax issues so they didn't have to rely on taxpayer dollars. Um, you know, the, the, the stories of Walt and the other people coming down to surreptitiously purchase the land is legendary. But that coupled with uh, how they were able to form this government, I mean, it's just amazing. And it's never been done before. And it'll probably never, ever happen again. Yeah, what's important to, to point out, and it's, it's kind of funny, is that when in 1965, when basically the cat was let out of the bag and they went ahead with the, the press conference, and it's the famous press conference where it was Walt and Roy with Governor Hayden Burns, and they basically announced their plans. And the interesting thing about it is it, it speaks to the politics you were just talking about, that, that initial, before, like you said, before any ground was moved or any of the steam shovels or anything moved in, they had to take care of the politics of it. And Walt played it very close to the vest at that press conference. Uh, basically, he said, well, you know, we don't have anything worked up yet, but we're working on it. And I, I remember reading that saying that he had all this stuff worked up already. He had plans, <laughs> you know, pretty much there, but he wasn't revealing anything because he knew he had to get the politics out of the way first. He had to get the very control you were looking, or you were mentioning. He had to get that all lined up before they could really go forward with anything. And that was really the precursor to really before the, the first you know shovel of dirt was moved. I, I mean, to say it's genius is an understatement. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, absolutely brilliant. And it goes to Walt as well as the people around him because he obviously had such confidence in the people around him to pull this off even after he had died. Uh, and, and that's, you know, amazing in and of itself. But, you know, once they get past this, okay, it's not, it's time to start actually building this thing. And one thing that was always of paramount importance to Walt, as well as the people that succeeded him, was the consideration and the preservation of the environment. Now, especially with Florida, because of the um, very high water table, they had to be concerned about the environment because one mistake in one area of the property could ruin 
uh, the environment in other areas of the property, but they did so much more to take advantage of the property they have. They bought about 27,000 acres they knew about. 20,000 of it would probably be usable and buildable, um, but were very, very considerate of the environment as well as uh, the animal life that was there. And when they built these canals and levees, I mean, they built 50 miles worth of them. Uh, they knew that not only did they have to look good, but they had to be functional and protect and preserve the environment as well. And they set up the the Walt Disney World uh, Wildlife Reservation. Uh, and that was setting aside, I believe, 7,000 acres would always be permanently set aside to not be developed uh, to, as you said, preserve the, ba- the, the balance that was needed in the area in that regard. Right, and that still is there. I mean, that, that property actually, I think it's actually grown since they first... Um, Bought it, but yeah, that that property will never be touched. And like you said, I think it's about 7,500 acres or so. But some of the other things they did too, um, you know, were sometimes out of necessity, sometimes out of design and and invention, and again, having to do with the environment. You know, one of the things I I, I talk about um, was the creation of these huge bodies of water. I mean, Bay Lake was there. That was one of the things that, again, Walt supposedly flew over and said, yes, this is the place. But they realize that next to Bay Lake, they have this huge unbuildable area, which ends up becoming the Seven Seas Lagoon. They turn that unbuildable area into the lagoon. They can build their now waterside resorts on there, have that as the entranceway uh, to the Magic Kingdom. And one of the things, too, you know, the story obviously goes that when they were draining Bay Lake, it was just, when they were filling Bay Lake, it was just mucky and murky. So they start to dredge the bottom. And what do they find underneath there is beautiful white sand, which now you find on the beaches of the Polynesian and the Grand Floridian. Um, and uh, like I said, the creation of the Seven Seas Lagoon. Yeah, it's, it's funny is that if, you know, to kind of, I'll do a wacky tie- sidestep, but it's interesting is if you remember um, the original China film in Epcot and they're talking about China and they're saying that, you know, the history of China is written in water. And the construction of Walt Disney World is very much the same way. Um, before they could do anything they did all these land surveys and soil surveys and things like that and what they found is exactly what you said they found this huge area of you know ground that was just south of where they wanted to put the theme park that they just couldn't do anything with and it was like a classic case of turning lemons into lemonade and it was really one of the magic moments there because it just pure serendipity like you know we wanted to set up this whole area with the, the, the three to four or five resort hotels that they had initially planned for phase one and it all just fell into place and again like you said I when you, you made me laugh there when you said the sand where you know they're drudging through all this muck I mean it was like just god ugly Bay Lake right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all of a sudden boom it was just you know it was like the magic the pixie dust was floating around even then during the construction phase but yeah water it was, there was an interesting quote I found that was Roy was talking about how Walt was very, very focused on water and how he wanted so much around this area to be based on water. And I think it again comes back to what the lack of the lack of things that he was able to do at Disneyland that he could do here, where he has where he had the scale and the scope to do it. Exactly, and you know, to continue on with this, um, the so, some of the the seven million cubic yards of, of dirt that they pulled out from the Seven Seas Lagoon, they used to create the, the foundation for the Magic Kingdom. So again, you know, everything yeah. just kind of falls into place and it worked out perfectly. Yeah, and, and the interesting to kind of segue into what exactly that is, they had plans, again, you know, well, the Magic Kingdom is famous for the Utilidors and the very fact that they had 
to build it elevated. And so that was part of the plan. And as you said just now, you know, they had the earth had to come from somewhere to get that elevation up from the Magic Kingdom so they could, you know, do that construction. And it was just all fortuitous that it all fell into place that way. Well, I mean, that that's really what this whole thing is about, was that they were really able to make the impossible possible. Um, and part of that goes to the fact that they were either using the latest technologies or they would create their own. And it went everything from, you know, building to communications to horticulture to even things like food distribution. Uh, you know, they even built their own energy plants and largest laundry facilities and costuming facilities. So they were literally able to, like you said, make that magic as they needed to uh, as they were building and as they went on and encountered some of these different challenges. And they were and they were drawing from all corners of the company. I mean, the three main organizations in Disney that were involved in the in, in the building of Walt Disney World is you had Wed Enterprises, which was Imagineering. It became they renamed it in the seventy later in the seventies or eighties. I can't remember. Sorry, they renamed it. <laughs> <laughs> and Mapo was the part of the uh, company that actually did the physical construction of the prototypes and the finished construction. And interestingly enough, and this is something that I think a lot of people probably don't realize, but the staff of Disneyland was instrumental in so much of what happened. They were basically, more than anything, they were the ones that were creating all the costuming, animatronic costuming, staff costuming. There was just so much that they were drawing on the staff of Disneyland for support in doing this because they had nothing else. They, they that's That was their base, and they had to pull from there. So Disneyland had a huge, huge impact on, on all of this as well. Right. Well, they, I mean, you know, they, they knew how to build the Magic Kingdom. They've, they've done it once before, so they knew that. But so much beyond that, because Walt Disney World really was going to be this self-sufficient city, there was so much more that they had to do. And I, and I made reference to making mistakes or, or really learning from Disneyland, but certain things were brand new to them. So, for example, there were no telephone lines. There was no telephone system. I mean, when I say that this was swamp, this was swamp. So what does Disney do? Well, they partner with Florida Telephone, and they create a whole new state-of-the-art telephone system. It's the first totally electronic system. They use underground tape, uh, cables. They use fiber optics. They use 911 emergency system for the first time in Florida. So again, they're on the cutting edge of creating these new things. And again, these are things that people who worked on Disneyland never would have had to have imagined. Even, you know, they built hotels in Disneyland, but when they did it here... They, they started this whole new construction method where they use the kind of chest of drawers. They build the skeleton on site. They create all the rooms off-site somewhere. Everything is in there from, you know, fixtures to wallpaper to everything else, and they slide them in like a chest of drawers into the hotels. I mean, that was absolutely brilliant. And let's talk trash. Let's talk trash. <laughs> <laughs> the, the trash system was the AVAC trash um, removal system, and it was basically pneumatic tubes. And this was the first time that anything of its kind was done in the United States. I believe it was imported from Sweden, um, the technology. And it was basically this whole system of just having um, stations throughout, the, primarily in the Magic Kingdom and the Kemper Resort, where all the trash was just pneumatically taken and to the central point and then automatically done totally off the radar from any guests and that's still the case i mean you don't see something as totally disgusting as trash removal ever happening within the parks like that and again that that leads us right to the utilidors which can almost be considered a wonder in and of itself and they deserve special mention here because things like the avac system are down there costuming is down there you don't see 
cast members walking from Frontierland to Tomorrowland because it's all done underneath. Well, actually, truly uh, really the first floor, as we all know, you know, the Magic Kingdom's really built on top of what the first floor is, which is uh, the Utilidors. But all of these uh, pieces of the infrastructure are built in there. And again, first time it's ever done like this anywhere. And it's just an it's engineering genius. And again, lemons and it, from lemonade. Right. And the, and the interesting thing there is you made when you said that, you made me think of that very interesting anecdote about, you know, Walt, where some of these innovations are rooted. And it was rooted in Walt's experiences with Disneyland. I mean, the guy retained everything and would bring it to bear later. And that was the case where we, we just mentioned where I think it was he saw the, the cowboy walking through Tomorrowland and just about had a fit. <laughs> you know, it ruined the show. And so there there you have something as simple as that evolves into the, the, the utilidors. And as, as exaggerated as, as that sounds, it's not far off. Right. And even, you know, recreating the Magic Kingdom, and we'll talk about the Magic Kingdom specifically, uh, you know, when they built it. They did it first in Disneyland. It's obviously done on a grander scale uh, in Walt Disney World. But if you think about it, Jeff, the, the building the Magic Kingdom in the, just a couple of short years that they had, because if they didn't, you know, this was not a project that took seven years. We're talking two, three years to get this whole thing built from the props to the attractions to the sets to things like the castle. Uh, you know, think about all of the actual labor that, that took place. There's, you know, 9,000 people and steel workers and artists and carpenters and so much more and painters to make this happen. I mean, if you've ever built a house, you know what what that's yeah. like. You know, imagine building that house 500 times over to, to build yeah, the Magic just, Kingdom. Yeah, to give everybody just a little bit of perspective, and, you know, we don't want to go into extreme detail, but basically, you know, it took a little over a year for them, as we talked about, to get the water and the land to where they wanted it. And then it was approximately in December of 68 where they had that ready to be staked out. And then that takes you to 71. That's a little less than three years, you know, of actual physical construction. Yeah. Uh, like I said, my parents just built a house. I know how long it took. <laughs> and I know the construction problems that arose. So you could just imagine, you know, what it, what it did. But, you know, again, it, it comes together and it is, it's a giant 3D movie. And it's a 3D movie on a set that's, you know, bigger than Manhattan. You know, it's twice the size of Manhattan. And think about what you as a guest only sees on stage, whether it's at the hotels or the transportation ticket center or in the theme parks. You forget what the infrastructure is backstage. You know, the energy plant and the food distribution and the waste and the horticulture and the tree farms. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's awesome. And it runs perfectly for the most part seven days a week 365 days a year 24 hours a day and and here when you, you just touched on something you, you keep sending these buzzwords out and they keep jumping on them like a predator or something like that but the tree farm is another interesting story because here again this is the genius of this whole the organization of people that he had working for him in that they knew they had to start that early so they literally started an initial tree farm in late 1967 because they had to determine the type of plants and shrubs and trees that they could bring in and how adaptable they were going to be to the Florida climate. And they were literally importing, you know, trees from all over the world, from Africa, New Zealand, Japan. And they literally had to give themselves enough time to determine what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And so that's something that had to be planned way out. And they did. They, they were just so on top of those. You know, we you, you take it for granted. You know, when you get down there, you see... All the trees, everything, you know, 
especially when you look now at Animal Kingdom, especially what they've learned in the process. But you take it for granted. But those trees, <laughs> so many of those trees weren't there. Right. They, they had to bring them in and, and replant them. Right. And like you said, it's not like building a house because they have to have that foresight years in advance. And beyond things like trees, think about, you know, the soil. Think about, we talked about the water. Think about just architectural things that they have to worry about. Weather, you know, dealing with the Florida weather and all the different kind of environmental conditions. So much of these things had to be planned and agreed upon and tested and evaluated before they even, you know, started to move the first piece of dirt. And, you know, again, I know we start kind of, you know, waxing all poetic and being very, you know, to use your term, Pollyannish about this, but it truly is amazing and it's never been done. And here again, you know, just here again, I, I keep jumping on these things. But one of the things that, again, like the landscaping, like the trees, things like that, that had to be done right from the get go. And again, it comes back to my, you know, issue of water, water, water. Because of the low the water table in Florida, they literally had to create a system of canals. They created a system of canals that was 55 miles of winding canals and floodgates that basically maintained the water levels so it wouldn't put any of the area in danger of flooding later on. And it's an ingenious yet very simple system, but again, it was something they had established right from the get-go because there was going to be big trouble with Florida's weather in that regard if they didn't take care of it right away. All right, and, you know, and we almost kind of glossed over the fact that they were building this this Disney theme park as well that had all these attractions and all these shows and all these kind of challenges that they weren't prepared for it and they still had to train people to run it and you know they again they learned from what had happened on Disneyland's opening day and it went off pretty much without a hitch which is pretty amazing again considering that the time that they had and the awesome size of, of what they had to do first of all take it to the slowest point in the year rather than the busiest day of the summer. <laughs> Good call. There. Lessons learned. <laughs> and you know, when we talk about the construction of Walt Disney World, we really shouldn't restrict it, Jeff, to just creating what ended up being the original, quote-unquote, Walt Disney World with the Magic Kingdom and the few resorts, things like that, because they've done this again and again and again. You know, when they built Epcot... Uh, again, the they groundbreaking was October 1st, 1979. Here you go. You got three years to design, you know, to build Epcot. And like the Magic Kingdom at the time, it was, again, the largest construction project ever in the United States. And the fact that it takes, I mean, look at, look at Epcot. Look at what it is. And imagine putting that together in just three years. Yeah, that's amazing because with Epcot especially, we talk about it a lot you see the scale and scope of Epcot as you stand there in the middle of Epcot. I mean, you see how enormous it is, whereas the other parks tend to be much more intimate and more compartmentalized when they're trying to get across their cities to you. Epcot is just vast, and it's just, it's mind-boggling when you stand on one side of World Showcase Lagoon and look over at Spaceship Earth or look over towards the American Adventure. They're just the sheer scale of what they accomplish is just incredible. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also single out Disney's Animal Kingdom, because you want to talk about a true, incredible movement of the Earth and bringing in <laughs> elements from around the world. I mean, they were literally moving 60 dump trucks of dirt every day for, for two years. So just try and you know imagine what that must be. And again, they start construction in August of 1995. It opens in 1998 on, on Earth Day. And 
you know, what it took between the research by Joe Rohde and all of the Imagineers to learn about what they'd need to do, learn about what would work, to create a safari that's bigger than the Magic Kingdom in and of itself, uh, and to transplant all these animals and trees and people and that they brought over to build the park and to work at the park. Again, just genius. A testament to how well they did that is the fact that I spent the first two or three years of Animal Kingdom being totally disoriented about where I was at any given time in that place. <laughs> <laughs> because of just the density of, of the trees and the, and, and the shrubs and the bushes and everything like that, the density of plant life, just you don't know where you're at sometimes. <laughs> and I think it literally took me that long just to get my you know bearings on the place, which to me, a lot of people complain about. I, 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 take, I see it as a compliment to the work they put into it. That's exactly where I was going to go. You know, people talk about losing their sense of direction as they kind of go into the Oasis and Discovery Island. And I think that's one of the benefits and one of the assets of Disney's Animal Kingdom because you are meant to go there and explore. You are not meant to run through that park as maybe you can or sometimes have to do at places like the Magic Kingdom because there's so much beauty in that park from the artistry to the craftsmanship to the animals and the plant life that should be taken time. And we've talked about this at length. Um, So much that should be appreciated that's in there. And, you know, again, the time and the effort and the money. I mean, think about the money they spent to build animal. It cost $800 million to build Animal Kingdom. That's, you know, twice as much as it cost to build all of Walt Disney World when it opened. I mean, to give right. you a, you know a, an idea of kind of scope and breadth uh, of what they did to create this. And Jeff, I, I think really, you know, kind of coming full circle and summarizing all this, nothing seemed to be, and certainly at, in the end, nothing was impossible. You know, what they were able to dream, they certainly were able to do. And yes, I'm kind of, you know, paraphrasing what would eventually become the mission statement and kind of ongoing vision of Walt Disney World that if they could dream it, they really could do it. Yeah, they there there was so much ambition and so much drive and inspiration in those early years. Uh, and going back and just kind of reading about everything from pretty much you know the early '60s all the way through to '71. And again, I keep bringing up the fact that you know dead center in the middle of all that, you have the very very distinct tragedy of Walt Disney passing away. Yet the determination and drive just extended beyond that, and it just showed you how solid and how amazing his dream was that he inspired the very people around him to carry it through especially his brother Roy to bring it to fruition and again never ever looking back never ever saying having regrets or reconsiderations or anything like that and it's and it's that what you're saying that you know we're, we're corny and sentimental but it's that vision and drive that still carries through all these years later and you know this wonder kind of unlike some of the other ones is one that continues to be continues to be a wonder and continues to almost be improved upon because they continue to learn, they continue to use new technologies, and whether it's construction of a new resort or a new attraction or whatever it may be, it's still amazing what they are able to accomplish. Um, and, you know, like we keep saying, whatever they're able to dream, they really are able to make a reality and, and call it that quote-unquote Disney magic, call it whatever you want. Um, and, and bear in mind, too, the we take for granted Disney World. We take for granted what it is. But when you stop and think, there is nothing comparable to it close to 40 years later. There is still nothing out there. Nobody has ever in the United States really tried to duplicate it or even come close to the scale and scope that it exists on. It's just, it's that unique. 
So that's it. That's the sixth of our wonder uh, of Walt Disney World, the construction and making these dreams a reality. We have one more left, and I think what we're doing is really going to save the best for last. We're going to kind of approach this one a little bit of a different way, but again, it's something that I think that you guys are going to enjoy, something I think you can agree upon. Again, for more from Jeff Pepper, you can go visit his blog at 2719hyperion.com. All right, Jeff, we'll see you next time. All right, thanks, Lou. Well, hello there, WDW Radio Show listeners. Eric Hollister from GeoMouse.com, and it's time to update everybody on challenge number seven's winner for the WDW Lou Mangello Half Marathon that will still take place in January of 2008. We want to thank everybody for their submissions over the last couple of weeks. We are going to go ahead and post the answers for last week's challenge on GeoMouse.com. Lou will provide an answer or link to it in the show notes. Uh, but for those of you who are wondering what the answers were, uh, Lou's question was, in 1982 when Epcot first opened, who were the sponsors of the Future World Pavilions in Epcot? Spaceship Earth, it was Bell Labs. We also accepted AT&T. Exxon was the official sponsor for the Universe of Energy. General Motors GM was the sponsor of the World of Motion. For the land, it was Kraft. And finally, um, the Imagination Pavilion, Eastman Kodak was the sponsor so congratulations to everyone who got it right we did pull all correct entries together we drew a name and that winner is ashley fisher and her mile marker mile marker number seven will now be known as someday i'll find my love and ashley wins both disney world trivia books volumes one and two signed by lou mangello a disneyworldtrivia.com t-shirt and land excuse me t-shirt both a pin and lanyard a Mickey Mouse Steamboat Willie Collector's Snow Globe, a certificate of dedication for mile marker number seven, and she will also be entered into the grand prize drawing, which will take place after the half marathon. Finally, geomouse.com will go ahead and donate $100 to the Lou Mangiello Dream Team, DisneyWorld.com Dream Team Project, uh, and all of their efforts. So congratulations to Ashley Fisher. Again, if you want those answers, if you want to look them up, they are on geomouse.com. This week we're going to be taking a break from the challenge, but stay tuned for next week's show where we will jump right back into it for challenge number eight. So with that being said, we want to take it back to Lou Mangiello and the WDW Radio Show. Thanks, folks. I've been saying for many weeks now that I have so many of your emails to get to, and as promised, I want to answer a number of them on the air this week. And since so many of the questions are about vacation planning and your upcoming trips to Walt Disney World, I wanted to once again enlist the help of our resident expert and travel planner, Pam Forrester, who's one of the owners of the Magic for Less Travel. They're an earmarked Disney agency. They have a number of agents who are graduates of the College of Disney Knowledge. And as I've mentioned time and time again, they are Disney fans first and foremost. 
They totally get it and they love what they do. Pam has been on the show before and this week she's going to come on to join me and answer some of your questions. Pam Forrester, welcome back. Thanks so much, Lou. I'm glad to be back. This, uh, this should once again be a lot of fun. And like I said, a lot of these questions I've been pushing, putting to the side so I could have you come on um, because they really are uh, very travel-specific questions. And I thought, who better than to have you come on, um, our resident expert, to help us answer them? I'm happy to help in any way I can. All right, well, let's get right into it. Like I said, we have a lot to get to. So the first one comes from Arnie, who says, Hi, Lou, my wife and I are both Walt Disney World nuts and have been there at least once a year since we met in 2001. Having said that, we're planning our first big trip with just us and our kids during the free dining promotion, also known as hurricane season. For what, what is Disney's policy on what happens if a hurricane would hit during our stay, especially staying on property? Do we get to rebook if the whole trip is wiped out or a discount or just a few days are interrupted? We're also traveling with our two young kids, four and one and a half years old and one more on the way. On our previous trips, we had family members to help us with the kids. As a parent of two small kids yourself, I was wondering if you had any tips for touring with small kids. I thought it might be a good segment idea for you. Thanks. See you, Arnie. Pam, let's start off with the the first part of that question first, which is what Disney's policies are, either written or unwritten, about traveling during the hurricane season. Um, The last couple years, when we had a lot of hurricanes predicted and, you know, eventually had a lot of hurricanes, but came close to Orlando and near that area, um, Disney kind of announced that they had a hurricane kind of peace of mind policy. And with this policy, um, if a hurricane was predicted for the Orlando area or from the area where the guest was traveling from, the guest would be able to um, change or reschedule their vacation without a penalty from Disney. Um, so this was a, you know, this was kind of a nice thing for Disney to do on their part to basically waive the rebooking fees that might have been there on their part, um, and then guests could feel free to change their dates and not feel like they were putting themselves or their family in danger. Um, and I just wanted to mention that this this policy only covered the components that were booked directly through Disney. And um, if you had booked separate airline tickets or things like that, that wouldn't have been covered. Um, but the hurricane policy as it stands for those two years did cover all the Disney change fees would be waived. Um, <clears throat> this year they haven't done that. And I think it might be because we haven't really had any big hurricane warnings for the Orlando area, uh, not to the extent that they have in the past. Um, I don't know if there comes a time when there are a number of hurricane warnings, if they'll reinstitute this policy, but we haven't heard anything about it this year. So um, I guess we'll just wait and see. Um, now, normally, like, it, was there sort of a cutoff time? I mean, do they have, you know, up until 24 hours, or could, or could it be that, you know, the day of they're supposed to travel, they could cancel and then not get penalized? Yeah, it was... We, the hur- that hurricane peace of mind policy was within seven days um, before their scheduled arrival date, so they could completely cancel, as you know, um, in that time period there. And so that was kind of a big benefit. When you book a package at Walt Disney World after you pay your final payment date, which is 45 days in advance, um, you can't make any changes or you will incur a fee. And if you've just booked a room-only reservation, you must make a change or cancellation more than five days in advance. So this gave guests a lot more leeway to do that. 
Um, now, this is whether either they booked directly through Disney or with a travel agent? As long yeah, as they... Okay. And, and a travel agency that books directly through Disney. I guess I should point that out because some don't. Our travel agency, when you book through us, we you get a Disney confirmation number. All your money is paid. Go to Disney. Things like that. So... Just like booking with Disney, only we're noted as the travel agency on your reservation. Um, not all travel agencies do that, so make sure you check with whoever you're booking for with, uh, through to see if you're booking directly with Disney, because I think that's the safest way to go. Right. Um, the other option is, you know, if you're going to be traveling during hurricane season, I, you know, have to recommend the travel insurance, which I know is an added expense for people, so you have to weigh that. But it, it just went up recently. It's sixty six ninety five per adult, and then that also automatically covers the children who are going to be on your reservation. They're included free of charge. But that pays for stuff like trip trip cancellation or interruption. And then if there you know, other things that may be not included on any other policy that you have, like emergency medical transportation or expenses, it also covers things like lost baggage and even travel delay and things like that. So that's something that guests may want to consider, especially if they're traveling during a time like hurricane season. Um, you know, like the $120 up front seems like you know, an expense that you may be able to just cut out and not pay for, but if you have to use it once, it will definitely pay for itself. So it's just something, another thing for guests to consider. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop you real quick because I think a lot of people sometimes get confused or they think that the trip insurance is either, you know, I hate to use the word scam, but something that they, that they don't need. What kind of instances maybe would people, you know, not realize that it would come in Helpful. So you said things like lost luggage and trip interruption. What what kind of things specifically would you be talking about? Um, if you had to go, if you had to leave in the middle of your vacation um, because of an illness, or you had to stop your vacation in the middle of an illness, that would be one thing where you know the trip insurance company would work with you to get reimbursed from for the cost of your vacation that you didn't get to use. Um, the emergency medical transportation, I bring this up specifically when people are, you know, booking a cruise because to get a helicopter to come get you off the ship, if God forbid that may need to happen, it's an expensive thing and it may not be covered by your own um, medical insurance that you have through your work or that you pay for. So that's something to consider as well. Um, there's a, you know, a number that you can actually call and talk to the the insurance people specifically about insurance. I'm not an insurance salesperson, so, <laughs> um, you know, I don't have all the specifics. I just know in instances that we've had to assist a guest with, and we helped facilitate that process, providing, you know, whatever we could to help the guest get the money back that they paid for their vacation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something just not to pat ourselves on the back but just to tell people that when you're booking with a travel agent, that travel agent should really work as an advocate for you. So let's say worst case scenario, you don't have trip insurance, there's no hurricane policy, and something awful happens the week before you're supposed to leave to go on your vacation. Call your travel agent, explain the situation. I know that our agents would go out of their way to work as an advocate for you to try to get 
Disney or whatever supplier to work with you so that you are not out a lot of money. Um, that's just one of our jobs. That's something that we should be doing. Um, and we would use whatever kind of pool we have with Disney to make something happen. We, you know, I can't work miracles. And in the end, it's Disney's decision to make. But um, that's something that we're happy to do for the guests, whether it's a weather incident or a personal incident hmm. that would cause a problem with their trip. Okay. And just to quickly touch on the last part of his question, this is something that I've talked about on the show before, and, and I'm actually probably going to dedicate another segment to traveling with young kids. He says he has a, a four-year-old, a one-and-a-half-year-old, and another one... Um, Another one sort of on, on his way when he's going to be there, and he's asked for some tips for touring with small kids. Um, the one thing I try and do is obviously say, you know, especially if you're going to travel in the warmer months, take it slow, keep them out of the sun, don't try and do everything because it's going to make for a, an awful trip for everybody. Um, yeah. You know, you, you can't do it all, and you certainly don't want to push the kids. Take the time to go back, keep them hydrated, keep them cool, um, you know, go back and relax. And while you may not be able to see everything in the long run, you're going to, you're going to have a much more enjoyable vacation. Right, and there's going to be things that your kids think are magical that you never even thought about, that, you know, never even occurred to you. Um, and, you know, just sometimes you just have to be open to letting the magic happen. I always say that to my family, but the smallest little thing may entice your child for, you know, a couple hours, and they get so much enjoyment from that. And so just going slow, like you said, is, is one of the ways that you can let that happen, and I think you'll be surprised with how many magical memories you come home with. Do what I do. Marion, watch your little brother, Nicholas. Mommy and I are going to ride Expedition Everest. So <laughs> guard, guard the stroller while we're gone. <laughs> Push him around a little. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next question. This comes from Jason Punk from, from right down the street here in Edison, New Jersey, who says, uh, Hi, Lou, you often bring up the topic of the Disney dining plan at Walt Disney World. Previously, you've mentioned that the dining plan was introduced in 2005 with the advent of the Magic Your Way packages. In fact, I participated in the Disney dining plan as early as 2002 through the Disney Discovery Dream Maker Package Silver Plan. Try saying that three times fast. Although you have extensively covered Magic Your Way Plus Dining, you haven't covered the dining differences between Plus Dining, Premium, and Platinum. So, here's his questions. Do Premium and Platinum operate on the same principles as Plus? Can you use different restaurants through premium or platinum? What are the additional benefits of premium or platinum? And I often refer to the snack option with plus dining. Does a snack option even exist on the premium or platinum? Thanks for your help. Keep up the great podcast. Again, that comes from James from Edison. Sorry, Jason from Edison. That's a lot of premium and platinum. And to add to the mix for 2008, there's going to be a couple more choices for dining plans. There's going to be the Disney Deluxe dining plan. There is also going to be the Disney's wine and dine um, plan. So in addition to the premium and the (laughs) platinum, (laughs) I'm going to mess that up a few times, (laughs) and the Disney dining plan that they've had for the past couple years, these two new things kind of round out the offerings. And you can see, so you can see why it's confusing to people with so much, you Uh, know, so many, you know, all the different nomenclature and different options that they have. Yeah, I I totally sympathize with this, but I'll try to kind of give an overview of each without being extremely verbose in this area. Um, First, you have the Disney Dining Plan, um, which is when each person in your party will receive a quick service, a snack, and a table service meal each night of your stay. 
Um, and, uh, you know, Lou's covered this a lot, and I think there's a lot of information out there about it. Um, I can send a PDF for all these, Lou, so you can put them up in your show notes. Perfect. But so this is kind of the basic dining plan that a lot of people have experienced and enjoyed and seen the benefits of. And there have been some changes for 2008. It can still be a good deal. Um, You just have to research it and see if it still works for you. The deluxe dining plan is the newest kind of addition to this lineup. And with the deluxe dining plan, each person will receive three meals and two snacks Um, per night of their stay. In addition, they also receive one resort refillable drink mug per person in their party. Um, The difference in the Disney Deluxe Dining Plan, it's kind of an interesting concept, is that all three of those meals could be table service if you wanted to. And um, a lot of people say, well, gosh, three table service meals, that's a lot of time eating. I want to be experiencing the attractions and things like that. But like Disney's regular dining plan, this is really flexible in that you could be using two of your three table service credits for um, a a signature restaurant if you wanted to a day. Or you can use them for counter service meals too. Um, It's just totally up to you. And this could be one of the biggest money-saving things you could do if you're planning on eating those meals. And again... That's something that everyone's going to have to assess themselves. Right. You have to actually use the plan properly in order to get the full benefit out of it, or else it's just a waste. Absolutely. That's why it takes a little bit of homework and a little bit of planning. But, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people may do a character meal in the morning um, and could conceivably do a signature restaurant in the evening. And that's only two meals that you've used, but you've used all your credits that day then. And so that's a great benefit. And, you know, I think that the signature restaurants at Disney World are definitely worth using the, you know, using your credits for and experiencing if you wouldn't do so regularly. So something for everyone to consider. Um, And just real briefly, the wine and dine package, um, that's something that has, that can be added on to a Magic Your Way package that has some kind of meal plan on it. You can't just add it to the basic plan. But basically, for $39.99 per night, you get a bottle of wine per night of your stay at the restaurants that you're eating at. Um, and this is kind of similar to the Disney Cruise Lines plan, where you um, can purchase a package where you get a bottle of wine for each night of your cruise. Um, I haven't had to, I haven't experienced that yet, and I can't tell you whether it's a good deal or not. I think, again, it's just one of those things, have to do your homework see if it works for you. Um, The Magic Your Way Premium and Platinum Package. They're a little different than the other strictly dining plans in that a lot of what makes these plans expensive is that they just include so much recreation and so many extra things. But, for instance, the Magic Your Way Premium Package, it includes breakfast, lunch, and dinner per person per night at... um, table service or quick service restaurants. You also get two snacks per person per night and again one resort refillable mug per person. So I know that um, he had specifically asked about the snacks and yes those are included. In fact you get two snacks per day and then your three meals. 
Um, and those are encoded on your key card, just like many of the other, you know, just like the other dining plans are too. So you're not responsible for keeping track of all that stuff either. Uh, the finally the platinum package. It also includes breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snack per person. Um, you get two snacks again with that, and it includes just about every restaurant, including Victorian Alberts and room service. So that's where you kind of get everything. Um, you'll also get the resort refillable mug as well with that plan. So I hope that kind of gives an overview <laughs> of the differences. <laughs> yeah, there, like I said, there, there's a lot to it, and, and you really need to do your research and make sure that you're going to take advantage of all the things that these packages offer to you because if you're not going to, like you said, do some of the, the activities and you're not going to plan on eating and drinking that much on your trip, right. then, then you may just be better off, you know, doing one of the lesser packages or, or not doing a package at all. Absolutely. The thing, I guess the thing about the Magic Your Way packages versus the packages that Disney used to offer is I feel with each one of these packages, if you utilize the components, you actually can save money. And that wasn't always true with package components in the end. I mean, we all, you know, before Magic Your Way came along, you could take out the components of the package and add them all up and pay less by booking everything separately. That's not always the case now, but it does require just a little bit of homework to make sure that you're getting what you're paying for, or at least breaking even. So, things to consider. And like I said, I'll send you some PDFs of each one of these so that people can download them and actually you really need to look at them in detail to see if it will work for you right and this too is where you know i've talked in the past about sometimes you like booking directly with disney where but going with a travel agent or being able to call up a travel agent and saying hey is this you know this is the way this is our family makeup this is the way we vacation is this something that in your experience you think is going to work for us or not work for us or what do you think is really the best way to get the most value for our dollar I think, yeah, and I think we do try to help guests, you know, we're there as this kind of a sounding board, you know, bounce some questions off us, ask us. Most of us have used the dining plan um, at different times, and we've used the other options available, and if not, someone else on our team will, and that's the best thing, I think, about our agency is that we really do work as a team. We draw from each other's experience, and we share that information with each other on a daily basis. Um, we're, you know, it's weird because we're all over the country, but we we talk to each other via email and lists and IM as much as anyone in an office would. So you get the benefit of all of our experience. And more importantly, you know, you guys are willing to make the sacrifice and go down and experience these things <laughs> firsthand so you can really speak intelligently about it, which is, you know, we all thank you for that very much. Are you hiring exactly. Pam? <laughs> exactly. I had to go down in, in August and turn around two weeks later and go back in September <laughs> just to make sure I was covering my heart. My hearts are bleeding for you collectively. We should really take up a collection for Pam. Because, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> All right, let's let's stick with food because there's yet another um, food question. This one comes from Chip, who says, "Hey Lou, I have a quick question. We've noticed that only certain attractions remain open during evening or during I'm sorry during extra magic hour evenings. Do all the park eateries and restaurants and stores stay open during extra magic hours as well? Our trip is 45 days away. Re-listening to all your shows, can't wait to try Pecos Bills." 
Again, that's from Chip. Uh, Chip, I'm going to give you the lawyer answer because it does vary depending on, obviously, what park you are. You mentioned Pecos Bills. I've been during Extra Magic Hours where Pecos Bills was closed by, you know, 11 o'clock, yet Cosmic Rays was still open. I think Casey's Corner is usually open. The shops are always open for at least an hour (laughs) until after the park closes. No worries there. Um, but what you really need to do is when you go for extra magic hours, Pam, I guess my, my best advice really is to either call ahead or get a times guide to find out if you are going to be looking for a late night snack, which one of those places are going to be open. Most of the sit down restaurants are not going to take very late, um, seating reservations, but the counter, there will be usually one or two counter service restaurants that will be open. Yeah, there will be. And that times guide is a little show and times guide that you get as you walk in the park can be invaluable. That's just, you know, you have to grab that when you come in. Or if not, stop in a shop and get one because it's going to list everything there. And, you know, even if you call two days before you get there, something could change between when you when you called and when you arrived. Times Guide is going to have the most accurate, up-to-date information. And um, that'll help you out when you get there. But there's always at least something open. Although, you know what's surprising? That... The Main Street ice cream shop is usually not open during extra magic hour. I think that's wrong. Listen, there's always the Main Street confectionery. I am telling you from experience, you can find sustenance in there to get you uh, on that long monorail ride back. I have done it before. So. <laughs> All right. But, you know, some people need that ice cream before they leave. So. I get more disappointed when the popcorn stands are closed at 2 o'clock in the morning when I'm strolling my way down Main Street. But I have to agree with that. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm really a popcorn person as opposed to the ice cream. There's just something about that Disney popcorn. Some Popcorn tastes better on Main street turkey legs taste better in frontier land it's just something in the air i don't know what it is but yeah. kelly sends our next question she says lou i'm just wondering how far in advance it uh, must a grand gathering be booked i'm going to try and plan for one of our family next year probably in the fall we'll be celebrating my 35th birthday and my parents 40th anniversary and again that comes from kelly pam why don't you just give us a little synopsis first of what uh, a grand gathering is and how far our people should be looking to book it Um, A Grand Gathering is really just a party of eight or more people who want to travel to Disney, and some of their dates will overlap, so they can form a Grand Gathering um, and take advantage of some of those things that the Grand Gathering may encompass. The great thing about this is that you don't have to make any special arrangements to make the Grand Gathering, in that... It's not like all five of your reservations have to be the exact same thing. You have to be same for the exact same dates or anything like that. Let's say you want to go, Lou, and there's the four people in your family, and you want to book a package. You always book a package. You book it with dining, and um, that's the way you do it. Then your parents want to come along, and they want to book a room-only reservation. They have an annual pass, and they're going to get an annual pass discount. They're going to be there a few of the days that you're there, not the whole time, things like that. You can create a grand gathering as long as you have eight or more people and one of your dates overlaps. And there's no need for you to be there the same length of time or even be purchasing the same kind of package or reservation. So there's still individual reservations. They're just linked together in a grand gathering. And you can make them 
any the same way you make any other kind of reservation. Um, if you're calling Disney directly to make the reservation, you can tell them that you want to set up a grand gathering and they'll transfer you to that department and then they'll be able to book your vacation. If you're booking through one of our agents, just let them know that you're um, going to want to book a grand gathering and they'll be happy to arrange that as well. So nothing real special you have to do. You don't have to do it. You don't have to make the reservation any more in advance than you would any in other individual reservation you might make when you travel to Disney. What about some of the, the special offerings like the uh, you know private savannas or the illuminations viewing, um, some of the other the dining things that they have and, and merchandise that's available? Is that something that you have to let them know way ahead of time, or is that something you could do right on the spot if you say, hey, you know what? Let, tomorrow, let's just do, you know, see if we can do the safari. Let's just see if we can get uh, a VIP Illuminations dessert party, something like that. Uh, the Grand Gathering experiences are definitely something you're going to want to book in advance. And you can book them 180 days in advance, just like you can other dining arrangements. But these are exclusive to parties that have arranged a Grand Gathering. And I just want to note, too, the Grand Gathering is something that you're going to arrange before you get on property. You must be designated a Grand Gathering through the Disney Reservation System. You'll actually get a Grand Gathering number um, for that, so I just want to make sure that everyone knows that. And that means you have to basically have eight or more people in order to qualify as a Grand Gathering? You do. Okay. Um, Disney used to be real strict in that all those eight people had to be staying on property. Now they make a few allowances, like a few members of your party could be staying off property, um, like say grandma and grandpa came over from somewhere in the area to do a grand gathering experience with you. They will let you do that. So just something else to keep in mind there. Um, the experiences are, I feel, the big draw for a grand gathering because these are really special experiences. I mean, these are things that used to only be available to say a large company planning an event or um, something like that in the park. And I'll just mention them all real quick. Um, one is the International Storybook Dinner, and it takes place at Epcot. And you get to have dinner um, and things like that. But I think the highlight of that is the VIP viewing of Illuminations. Um, and, you know, I don't think you can beat that. I think that's a really unique experience, not something that that people are typically able to arrange on their own. Um, and then another one is the Good Morning Gathering, and that's the one that takes place at the Magic Kingdom, at Tony's Town Square, and there are characters there, and you get to eat breakfast, and that's before the park opens. And again, that's another really exclusive thing that you wouldn't be able to arrange on your own. Well, like that That's not just having a character meal at Tony's. You have your own private area. The characters are coming just to spend time with you. So I don't want people to, to think that, well, you're just making a, a reservation for eight. This is a very right. unique type of experience that you're getting. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And we've never had someone come back from one of these experiences and say, oh, that was not worth it. I didn't like it. <laughs> you know, no. These are great experiences. And, and Disney does their best to make them a really special experience for everyone there. Um, the next one is the Safari Celebration Dinner, which has kind of been um, out of commission because um, Tusker House has been down for so long, and that's actually where this takes place. Um, and hopefully that will be coming back soon. The What this is is you get to go on 
a private safari. This is after the park has closed. You do the same safari um, run that you do on the regular Kilimanjaro safaris. But this is kind of a little at a slower pace, a smaller group. It's just the, the grand gathering people out there experiencing it. Um, you have a lot more time for pictures. You get a lot more one-on-one time with the cast members, and you get to ask a lot more questions. And then you get to go have a really special dinner at Tusker House, and I've done this one a couple of times, and felt like the food was really good. Um, I really enjoyed the opportunity to get to, ask, get to ask the cast members some more of my questions and the interaction there, and even the, the stopping to take a photo or things like that. They were more willing to do that than they're able to do on the regular Kilimanjaro safaris. So, and again, the food isn't food off the Tusker House menu. It's no, it's special, no. it's African, you know, exactly. African-inspired food. Right, it was an African um, buffet and had just a lot of different choices. And I'm, I'll be interested to see how this works, actually, when Tusker House reopens as the buffet restaurant. So I think it'll be a much nicer venue for this to take place in and it's really a great experience and was worth every penny of it. Now, uh, again, something you can't arrange on your own, which is, it's nice to be able to take part in the special things that, that Disney World has to offer. I mean, you know, everything is so wonderful, the parks and everything every day but these really special experiences i think disney really excels at and you can really see disney shine in these areas i agree and i'll also put a link up in the show notes to the magical gatherings page uh over at the disney site for a little bit more information uh but let's move on to another question this one comes from dave Derezzo from new jersey he says lou we went to walt disney world last christmas we stayed at the swan and when i made our reservation i asked several times how do I get all the benefits if I'm staying at a Disney-owned resort? Because I was concerned about early entry, restaurant reservations, free parking, etc. They said, yes, it's just like Disney, all the same benefits, but they were wrong. One benefit that I tried to use, which is very important at Christmas, was allowing resort guests to make restaurant reservations in advance of the general public. We weren't granted that quote-unquote right. I called the reservations line several times and confirmed resort guests were being allowed to make reservations earlier than we were and it was very frustrating. Um, so, Pam, obviously, I, maybe I think what we're looking to do here is just quickly explain what the advantages or disadvantages or what maybe you don't get by staying at some place specifically like the Swan or the Dolphin, which are on property but are kind of sort of not real Disney resorts. Right. And they are on Disney property, but they are not Disney-run hotels. They're actually operated by the Starwood Group. Um so this is just something to keep in mind, and there will be some differences. They aren't huge differences, but I'll go over a few. Um, one of the things is you can't make your reservations 180 days in advance for your whole trip like you can when you're staying on Disney property. If you're staying on Disney property at a Disney-owned hotel, uh, 180 days from the day of your check-in, you can make your advanced dining arrangements for your whole trip. Um, when you're staying off property or when you're staying at the Swan and Dolphin, you can make um, dining arrangements 180 days in advance. So basically, if you wanted to make each day of your reservation, dining arrangements for each day of your reservation, you would have to call every day that's 180 days out. Boy, could I make that more complicated? <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully it makes sense. <laughs> 
Um, another another thing to consider when saying that Swan and Dolphin is you're not going to be able to charge things to your room while you're in the Disney parks or in the Disney restaurants. Um, that's a benefit that's exclusive to the Disney hotels. You also are not going to be able to use Magical Express um, if you're staying at the Swan and Dolphin. So that's something for people to consider because I know that that is a draw for the Disney resorts. Um, a lot of people are using Magical Express, so that will impact your vacation. Um, and finally, you cannot get the dining plan if you're staying at the Swan and Dolphin Resort. It's just not available. All those dining plans that we went through, they're not available at the Swan and Dolphin. Well, it makes it less confusing for those people who don't want to figure out the dining plan. So, exactly. <laughs> if you don't want to be bothered with, with figuring out platinum and premium, just stay at the Swan or Dolphin, and exactly. you could walk right through the international gateway. So, but they do have a lot of the benefits that the on-site resorts have, um, and I don't want people to think, "Oh, the Swan and Dolphin." You know, I wouldn't stay there because that's not really Disney. It is. It's on Disney property. They're beautiful properties, um, and you get a lot of the benefits of the other on-site resorts, and that is that you can use extra magic hour. And I think that that's one of the biggest benefits of staying on-site. Uh, personally, we use it all the time. Mm -hmm. You'll also have access to Disney transportation. Those are Disney buses that are going to pick you up. You're going to take Disney boats to get to places, things like that. Um, you can have packages shipped back to your resort, just like you can when you're staying at other Disney resorts. And... They're, the Swan and Dolphin also offer um, exclusive discounts that you're not going to get at any of the other Disney resorts. They have discounts for teachers and nurses and government officials, things like that. There's no discount like that on Disney property, except for at the Swan and Dolphin. And also, there are often rooms available when the other Disney resorts are sold out. Right. So it's definitely something to consider if you're planning a last-minute trip and you can't find anything or you're one of, you know, the teachers or nurses or government officials and looking for a better rate, um, definitely something to consider. And I would not steer someone away from the Swan and Dolphin. No, and they're beautiful hotels. I mean, they're not obviously themed in the way something like the Polynesian is or, or right. you know, Caribbean Beach. But you've got ideal location, walking distance to the boardwalk, to Epcot and to the Disney Studios. And you've got some great restaurants in there as well. I, I've recently eaten at Il Molino, which was I, I thought it was fantastic. And uh, Shula's is there as well. So there's a lot of benefits to staying at the Swan and Dolphin, especially if you're not all that concerned with some of those things or the theming. Um, I, I, I enjoy them, yeah. It's, a, it's another good choice. And I mean, you know, if they weren't, if they weren't uh, you know, emanating that, that Disney guest services and things like that, you know, they wouldn't still be there. They're still part of the Disney community of hotels, and, and I think they're doing a good job. Absolutely. Let's go on to yet another question about food. And this one comes from Catherine, <laughs> who says, Lou, can you give me some advice on an ADR? I called yesterday to make reservations for the Brown Derby. The woman on the phone asked me if I was going to see Fantasmic, to which I replied, yes. She told me a little bit about the Fantasmic package, but frankly, she wasn't very clear as to what exactly the package was. I just ended up making a regular dinner reservation. So I did a bit of research, and it seems interesting. The woman on the phone seemed to be saying that the menu selection with the package was more limited than if you have a regular reservation. Is this true? Also, we're going to plan on going on Columbus Day. Do you think having priority seating at Fantasmic is worth the extra cost associated with buying the package? Any help would be appreciated. Again, that comes from Catherine. So Pam, I guess first, let's maybe talk about what the Fantasmic dinner package is 
uh, what restaurants it, it um, you can you can use it in conjunction with maybe how you can tie it into the Disney dining plan and that we think about uh, whether it's worth it or not. I, um, you know, I, it's a shame that the cast member didn't know that much about it, but you can see just by calling, there is just so much information about the Disney destinations. It is hard to keep on top of all of this. And this is just an example of it. The, um, the Fantasmic package is basically what happens is you kind of prepay for dinner and then you get a guaranteed uh, seating spot for Fantasmic that night. Um, it's not. It's it's in a special section. You'll be seated in a special section. It's not right down front in the center. It's a little to the right of the stage. Still has a great view of the stage, and I think it's perfect for people who don't like to wait in line. And I would be one of those people. I don't, um, especially when there's a way that I can avoid it. And to, and to answer her question, if she's going around a holiday, you know, the lines for yeah. Fantasmic are going to start to get there around two hours early. And that's not, exactly. that's not an exaggeration. No, it's not. If you, can see the later, if you can see the later show, and there are two shows, the later show is always going to be less of a line. But still, there's going to be a line. And that's not always fun. So <laughs> let's look at the options then <laughs> for how you can avoid the line. <laughs> And basically, the Fantasmic Dinner Package is available at the Brown Derby, at Mama Melrose, and at Hollywood and Vine. Um, at the Brown Derby, it's $46.99 per adult. This is, this is the price after November 5th, which I'm assuming that most people are looking for. Um, and what you get is your choice of appetizer, soup, or salad. You get an entree and a dessert. So you get three-course meal there. Um, and that's per adult. Uh, for child three to nine, it's eleven ninety nine, and it includes a child's entree, beverage, and dessert. Uh, Mama Melrose is thirty two ninety nine per adult, and it includes a choice of appetizer, entree, dessert, um, and drink. I don't know if I mentioned that up at the Brown Derby, but they all include a non alcoholic beverage as well. And for children, it's eleven ninety nine. And finally, at Hollywood and Vine, it's a buffet, and it's twenty three ninety nine per adult and $11.99 per child. It used to be that when you were doing the Fantasmic Dinner Package, you um, ordered from a limited menu or a reduced menu. That's not the case anymore. Guests are free to choose um, any appetizer, entree, and dessert from the menu that, that's there right now. And I like, I really like Brown Derby. If you want to have um, a very good kind of in-park dining experience. I like the Brown Derby, but I also really like Hollywood and Vine. I think you get a really good bang for your buck there because you're talking $23 for an adult, $12 for a kid. The the buffet is all you can eat, and there's things on there like prime rib and salmon and uh, vegetarian dishes and chicken and whatnot. So you could potentially get a lot of food. You still get the um, the reserved seating, and you're not obviously paying the additional $20 to eat over a Brown Derby. Obviously, the, you know, although the meal selection there is going to be much different. So... Um, it is. I, I've done it both ways. I've done the Fantasmic package again, going with family that I didn't want to make stand online or, or you know, I can't, my kids are too young to send them ahead and, and stand online right. for us. So, um, Although we know what they'll be doing in a few years. You better believe it, kiddo. So, <laughs> I'm priming them right now so she gets to lay the land of the park. So, um, But yeah, I mean, the, the Fantasmic package definitely has some advantages. And if you're going around a holiday, it may be uh, something you, you definitely want to look into doing. 
I, yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, uh, you know, I, like I said, I just don't, I don't like to wait in line, although, you know, we do it all the time when we're in Disney World, but if I can avoid it, um, I, I will, and I, I think the Fantasmic Dinner Package is a great way to do that. All right, let's try and get through a couple more relatively quick questions. The first one comes from Douglas, who says, I want to spend a week in Walt Disney World Sunday to Sunday or Saturday to Sunday. If I'm using Magical Express, is it possible to stay at a value resort for five or six nights, then transfer to a moderate or deluxe for our last night or two? We won't have a car, so how will that work? Also, what if we rented a car the first two days so we can get to see, dare I say, and I hate to say the U-word, Universal and other things in the area. Is it possible to check in to rent a car when we first get to Orlando, check into our hotel, then return the car at the airport, take Magical Express back to the resort, even though we've already checked in? Stay with me, folks. Uh, would that actually save money, or am I just being too much of a penny pincher? He said it, not me. Thanks for the help. Love the show again. That comes from Douglas. Douglas, <laughs> well, you have really, you have really thought, thought of- this out, boy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was going to say, too. He's at least thought of all of his options. So I like that, though. I like the planning and the looking ahead and how to do this and how to make it work because it can work. Not in all the scenarios you suggested, but um, I'll suggest a few. First of all, even if you're splitting your stay, you can take Magical Express. Um, For the first part of your vacation, you will schedule Magical Express um, to take you from the airport to your resort. And on the second part of your reservation, you'll schedule it to take you from your resort to the airport. Um, you'll need to make two arrangements for the Magical Express um, to take you both ways, but you can do that, and that's not a problem. The rental car throws a little bit more of a challenge in, but that's something we can work with. You could um, rent a car on-site at Disney at the Swan and Dolphin or at the Car Care Center through Alamo. Um, even if you wanted to pick up your car at the airport when you landed, drive it to your hotel, keep it for a couple days, you could then return it to the Swan and Dolphin or the Car Care Center, too. So that's another option for you maybe that you didn't think of. Um, and as far as switching resorts partway through your stay, Disney will help with that. What you'll do is call Bell Services and just let them know that you're moving from say pop century to the polynesian and they'll be happy to um, help you get your luggage over there then you can go and enjoy your day at the park and when you go to that other resort in the evening your luggage will be there you just have to call bell services and it'll be delivered to your room so you don't need to worry about transferring that luggage yeah like you said it's definitely possible you know the, the traveling back and forth to the airport may really end up causing you more time and headache than it might be worth just so just blow off Universal and stay on property. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? And I did want to say part of his question was, could they take Magical Express back to the resort even though they've already checked in? No, you won't be able to do that. Um, you actually make a reservation for Magical Express. It's not like a 24-hour-a-day, you know, all everyone, come on in kind of shuttle <laughs> thing. You make a reservation. Um, so although you couldn't go back and forth to the airport during your stay, um, you can use Magical Express at the beginning and at the end, right. even if you're at different resorts. So and there are, uh, and obviously you can take, you know, a taxi service and there's car services that if you do want to go to Universal or, or SeaWorld, I, I'm saying that half jokingly, but you can take car services, which, which might end up just being a little bit easier for you and, and, uh, 
uh, and save some time and money as well. So I agree. Lots of people find that the whole, you know, part of the fun of being at Disney World is they don't have to drive anywhere. So, um, you know, let somebody else do the driving if you want to, too. Exactly. All right, a couple more quick ones. This one comes from Chuck in Roanoke, Virginia. He says, Lou, love the podcast, especially when you bring on special guests like Disney Legends and Pam Forrester. I have a question. I'm planning to return to Walt Disney World for Easter of next year, and I'm trying to find out what special events may be taking place on Easter Sunday and the following week. I appreciate your help. Uh, Pam, he's going at a great time of year, albeit one of the busiest, but there are a lot of special events and there's special dining as well as, um, I guess we should also probably mention some religious services that take place on property as well. There are. And I mean, I think that, you know, I've seen everything from Easter egg hunts to, you know, just special meals being offered by the restaurants. And these change every year. Lou, where's your lawyer? Where's your lawyer spiel? (laughs) These do change every year, but many of the Disney resorts are going to offer some kind of special event. And I think the best thing to do is check in that little guide you get when you check in at your resort because they're going to have a lot of the special activities listed there. Right. And just for example, um, I know coming up this year, for example, if you're staying at uh, All-Star Movies, there's an egg dive, make your own Easter cards, spoon races, bunny visor crafts, pool activities, bunny hops. If you go over to the Magic Kingdom, they do have a meet and greet with Mr. and Mrs. Easter Bunny. I didn't realize there was a Mrs. Over at oh, the, uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> over at the tour garden um, from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. There's added hours for a lot of the restaurants. There's also some uh, signature dining events that you can do over at Cinderella Royal Table, Boma, Victorian Alberts, Citrico's. Um, and again, like I said, you really need to kind of either talk to a travel agent or, or call ahead to see what you know some of these things are. And obviously, if you check the Disney website, they'll talk about some of these things as well. But depending on what resort you're staying at, you should call ahead, find out what things are going on. They've already, I think, released, Pam, all the stuff that they, they tentatively have planned um, at all the different resorts right now. Right, and they just, you know, they kind of tweak, and I think they do their best to make every holiday kind of special again. So there's going to be activities for you different things to do and it's a holiday in disney world so there's no better place so a jelly bean tasting contest that's over, <laughs> that's over at port orleans again i see research maybe in my near future so <laughs> <laughs> i guess that could be good unless you have like those harry potter ones <laughs> not so good but yeah fun stuff yeah definitely definitely going to disney world around holidays is really an added experience. I love going around Christmas, but Easter, you know, any of the major holidays, they always have something special. And again, like I said, just real quickly, they do also um, offer uh, religious services on property, which is something that they haven't done uh, for a long time, you know, normally on Sundays, but they do have um, religious services. I believe over at the contemporary, they have uh, two Roman Catholic masses, and a Protestant service as well. And there's obviously plenty more religious uh, locations around Walt Disney World that you can go to depending on what your denomination is. Right. Yep, lots of opportunities for that. And and I just wanted to say, too, about the holiday thing. I mean, you are going to have increased crowds, but there's also increased park hours to help you deal with those crowds. And there's so many special events that just don't take place during the rest of the year. I've always felt it's worth it at least once to go and experience a holiday there. Exactly. Uh, let's see. Oh, we actually answered a couple of these other questions. Somebody had, uh, Rachel had asked about uh, trip insurance, which I think we covered. 
And Dan in the UK also talked about those 180, 190 days out for ADRs if you're staying on property. So Chip Joyce has a real quick one. He says, Lou, we're staying at the All-Star Movie Resort and heard they show movies by the pool at night. Is this true? And if so, can you tell us more about it? <laughs> Was that, mm-mm, I can't tell you, or mm-mm, I don't know? <laughs> <laughs> I missed that one. No, I don't know about that. I know that they are doing it at the Yacht and Beach Club, though. Right, I was going to say, I, I've seen it over at the Yacht and Beach Club. When I was down there last time, they had uh, a huge uh, inflatable screen up on the beach, and they had yeah. lounge chairs, and they had hammocks, and they were showing cars, and uh, it looked like it was a lot of fun. It was pretty crowded, so... Uh, again, depending on when you're going, I would probably call ahead to All-Star just to find out. I have heard them doing it at other resorts, but I can't speak specifically to if they do it um, at All-Star and if they do it every night. So I would call ahead depending on when you're going. Yeah. All right, Pam, I think we have time for one more since we've already gone longer than I expected it to. But like I said, we had a lot to get to. But this one comes from Elizabeth in Edmond, Oklahoma, who says, Hi, Lou. I, lo- I found your podcast. I'm so glad I did. I've enjoyed listening. Our family's planning a trip to Walt Disney World in December 2007. It's going to be the first trip for our two sons, who will be turning four and eight months. I'm so excited. I'm almost intolerable to be around. I really enjoy all the planning and research. My husband, however, is not so as excited, and he thinks I'm crazy. We're staying on site and visiting the park for six days. Do you have any specific recommendations for events, attractions, or the like to help him, quote, get it? Thanks for your advice and all that you do. (laughs) I love it. I love that she's intolerable. That's like me before a trip. Seriously, as many trips as I've taken, I think that my family and friends are tired of hearing me talk about it, you know, before we go. It's like the excitement builds, you know, to that you're two weeks out, and all you can think about is Disney. And as, but, um, as, as if it's your first time ever going, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I still feel that way, and I love the intolerable. I'm going to be using that again. I'm intolerable. But anyways, I think it's hard sometimes when our family and friends don't don't share this passion with us, because we, all we want to do is talk about it and find more people to talk about it, you know, too, and things like that. I think we can convert them. Um, And I always say to people who are taking family members with them who don't seem that excited, what does your husband like to do on on any other vacation? You know, what kind of things does he like? Because chances are he can probably do something like that at Disney World. Um, You know, we get the people who say, well, you know, my husband, he just wants to sit around by the pool (laughs) or on the beach or things like that. Well, that's not going to be a problem. You're going to be able to sit around a nice pool or even on a beach if you happen to be staying at a resort that has a beach. There are tons of recreation options, and some of them, I think, are specifically geared toward men in particular, like the Richard Petty driving experience and the fishing excursions and stuff like that. Not that women don't do them. (laughs) I just think it's kind of, you know, a couple guy things out there. Um, And also even things from like tennis and parasailing and things like that that's you know something you can experience on disney property and something that might appeal to people who are looking for something different obviously you have 99 holes a championship golf you've got you can take out all the different watercraft exactly all the things that i never have time to do (laughs) (laughs) um but there's just so many recreation opportunities out there for people and another thing you can do to kind of help reluctant family members is to let that person plan a day. 
So from morning to night, this person gets to pick the parks, the attractions, the dining experiences. And I think it lets them, you know, take a little ownership of their vacation. And they'll probably end up finding some things that they didn't know about, makes them do a little research. And I think the more information that you have, the better vacation you're going to have. So, yeah, that, that, that goes to, to part of what I was going to say, which was try and do some of that planning together. Try and make him understand and, and anticipate what he may be coming up to. You know, if he's a thrill ride person, talk to him about Everest or talk to him about Soren. And don't necessarily, you know, I, I talk about allowing yourself to be a kid again. And, and you can't necessarily force feed that down somebody's throat and say, listen, it's going to be the middle of August. We're going to stand online for Peter Pan's flight for 75 minutes. And I'm telling you, you are going to love it. Because that just might not be his thing. You know, we might right. get it. That might be what we want to do. But yeah, don't maybe you're necessarily overwhelmed by saying, okay, here's your burnbound guide. You plan the day, but do it together and let him know right. that it's not just a, a place for little kids and it's not a thrill ride place. And if you want to go and watch the game on Sunday, there are some great venues to do it. Um, and if he wants to go relax by the pool, so many of the resorts have such great pools, like you said, uh, and just just different things he can do and maybe pick out something unique that might kind of put him over the top well whether it's a unique dining experience or if you know that he enjoys good seafood or good steak pick one of those signature restaurants to take him to or something unique like Jico or boma and and give him a chance to try something that maybe he wouldn't try somewhere else so absolutely i mean there really are there are, the opportunities are just out there you just have to do a little research and find them. Um, my husband loves to fish, and I booked one of the fishing excursions for him one Christmas. He absolutely loved it. Um, and, you know, you can't, you don't get to do stuff like that at home, or there isn't time. And on vacation, you can make the time to do all these all these things that you've kind of been wanting to do. So you'll find something that he likes, and hopefully you'll come back, and he'll be a convert, and he'll be there just as excited about the next trip as you were for this one. And I talk all the time about how important it is and, and how Disney World is so great about making memories together as a family. But Elizabeth, there is something to be said for going solo. I've, so I've done it before. And, you know, if, if, he's, if he's unconvertible or inconvertible, then, um, you know, you, you always have friends who are going down solo as well. So uh, I'm sure if you try some of those things, I'm sure he will eventually come around. And um, so good luck with that. But, uh, yeah. Pam, we, um, again, we didn't get to as many emails as I hoped. Um, I would love for you to come back and address some more of these with me. I think this was a lot of fun, and I think we gave people some good information. If you have any more questions for Pam specifically, or uh, if you're looking for a travel agent, you know I've recommended them highly. Uh, I use the magic for less. I, I really endorse what they do. You get a good sense from Pam about the fact that she gets it and that she loves what she what she does and, and the uh, kind of service and personal attention that she's going to be she and her agents will be able to give you um, will be unmatched and really kind of matches that whole Disney experience. Um, Pam, just tell us how that they what the best way is to contact you. Um, you can go on our website. It's www.themagicforless.com. And you'll find information there. You'll also find quote forms if you already know where you're going to go or when you'd like to go. You can fill out one of our no-obligation quote forms. Um, we're always happy to give you pricing and discuss some options with you. And if you have something that you feel needs um, some specific attention, you can contact us at info at themagicforless.com. That's info at themagicforless.com. Great. 
Pam Forrester from The Magic for Less Travel, thank you so much for coming on. Definitely want to have you back again soon, and uh, I will see you down in Disney World. All right. Thanks so much, Blue. Thanks. Thank you again for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. My thanks again to Jeff Pepper, Eric Hollister, and Pam Forrester for their help on this week's show. To download the documents that Pam made reference to, visit our show notes page for a link to the DisneyWorldTrivia.com download section. Also on our show notes page, you can find plenty more information, including notes and links to previous episodes of the show. On future episodes, I'll have more vacation planning tips and advice, as well as another in our Best of the Best segment. I have more interviews lined up and a couple of surprises in store, so be sure and stay tuned. As always, please keep emailing the show at lou at wdwradio.com and calling in your voicemails to 206-202-4WDW. That's 206-202-4939. You can also join us all week long at our fun and very friendly forums at disneyworldtrivia.com for discussions about all things Disney, as well as anything you've heard on the show. And remember, if you like the show, please help spread the word and let others know about it. Thank you again to all of my guests and to you for tuning in again this week. So until next week, see ya. Hey, Lou. This is Andy Jackson from Riverview, Florida. I'm Fishy Rocket Boy on the forums. Just wanted to call and give you a report from a great day I had at Epcot on Friday. I gone over just with the idea of checking out the first day of food and wine, do a little reconnoitering for uh, hopefully two or three more trips before food and wine goes over, gets over. And as I got around to the American Pavilion, I saw cast member Lonnie, and I uh, went up and asked him how many times a day he gets asked, or people mentioned to him that they had heard him on a podcast, and he laughed and that it happened pretty frequently, and he mentioned that he was going to see you probably today. Um, then he tells me about that this day is also the uh, opening day of the National Treasures exhibit, and I should make a point of coming back for the opening ceremonies, which I did. Uh, the ceremonies were very nice. Uh, it was uh, only maybe a couple of hundred people, maybe 300 people, if that, uh, in there for it. So I was uh, pretty fortunate to be there. I got the opportunity to meet Betty Grissom, who was the widow of Gus Grissom. And, of course, um, being a rocket geek, that was a real big thrill for me. I also got to meet um, Jackie Robinson's daughter, who was very nice, and Marty Sklar, which that was uh, very neat to meet him. He was also very nice and a great representative of the company. Cesar Chavez's daughter was there as well. I didn't get the opportunity to speak to her, unfortunately. Uh, it's a nice exhibit. It's small, uh, but some very cool things in there. So that was a, uh, a really great surprise and just a great day at Epcot. Uh, the food at, food and wine that I tasted was good. Got to basically walk on the soaring first thing in the morning. So it was a really, really good day. Unfortunately, I won't be able to be over there for the... Uh, 25th anniversary day, I guess I have to work sometime, but uh, uh, hopefully we'll uh, meet up with you at uh, Mouse Fest, since I won't get an opportunity to meet you while you're down here for uh, 
the Epcot ceremony. Anyway, enjoy the uh, podcast. Keep up the good work. Um, see you in December, hopefully. Hi, Lou. This is Catherine from Massachusetts. Um, we just returned from our trip to Disney World, and we had a wonderful time, except for the rain, but um, we dealt with that. Anyways, I just wanted to mention to you that we, when we went to NTM, or now the Hollywood Studios, um, on the Backlot Tour, they, they've removed Britney Spears from the list of um, Mouseketeers that they talked about on the tram ride, and it was rather comical, and I don't blame them for doing that. Definitely, uh, she deserved to be removed. It just doesn't fit the Disney image at all. Um, Keep up the good work. Love the show. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou. It's Catherine from Massachusetts again. Um, I was just listening to your show, and you jogged my memory when you talked about your trip over to the Haunted Mansion. Um, This was something that we were dying to just see when we uh, did our trip to see all the upgrades. And we actually saw it for the first time on Thursday, October 4th, when we went to the Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. And they actually had a special woman actor in the the little um, courtyard area by the queue. And she put on a whole performance for us while we waited in line. And she had the back story of being at the mansion for her coming out party and she is the one that actually fell through the railing that you see in the ballroom. Um, you do see it. It's got a broken section. She was extremely comical. We were all dressed up, so she was, you know, making fun of us and just picking on people in the lines and just made it, the wait seem so short because she was so funny. Um, Disney really did it up. We totally loved all the changes to the Haunted Mansion. My little daughter really, really, really loved the part where the um, they showed all the pictures of the bride's um, husbands, or and also my son was a little freaked out by the bride that changed to her, the, how they had her, and they show her with um, the axe and everything. But it was awesome. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Hi, Lou. This is Gary in uh, Staten Island. I heard you talking about uh, music in Epcot and past attractions. I didn't hear you say about uh, True Colors, which was uh, another great song that was done. Uh, I do believe it was near the uh, Journey to the Imagination post-show. I just wanted to bring that to your attention. Um, And I do believe that was uh, Captain uh, Nemo, Captain uh, with uh, Michael Jackson. I can't remember it too much uh, at this point. But uh, True Colors, that was one of my favorite, and I didn't mention. Uh, maybe it was one of yours as well. All right, good show. Keep up the good work. Thanks again, and uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou, it's Keith Fischetti, uh, Disney Nut 68 on the forums. Uh, my wife and I are here in Walt Disney World. We're in the Animal Kingdom today, and I just got off Expedition Everest for the first time, and it was an incredible ride. Uh, the queue, just like you said, the detail, I did stand by, I didn't do fast, fast. The, the detailing in that line is just incredible. Uh, and the, the ride itself was awesome. So just thought I'd call in, give you a quick uh, report of it. Uh, love the show. Keep it up, and uh, look forward to New Beach Week. Thanks, Lou. Have a good day. Hey, Lou. 
Turkey Frog here, and I'm here today to talk to you about Muppet Meats! No, this isn't the wildly successful Magic Meats, is it? Um, no, it's, uh, it's all about us this time. Join your host, Fred Block, a really swell guy if I can add, for a fun-for-all gathering during MouseFest 2007. Um, that's uh, MouseFest at Disney World, uh, not the Magic Meets in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. Um, Mr. Announcer, this this is an ad for uh, Magic Meets, or, or is it MouseFest, or Muppet Meets? You can get more information by heading on over to www.magicmeets.com. Anyway, meet us at 4 p.m. on Friday, December 7th in front of Muppet Vision 3D, located at the Disney MGM Studios at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. See you there! Yay!